Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today we're going to have a great conversation with Johnny Rashid, the author of Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. Johnny, welcome to the program. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks so much, Josh. Yeah, now I have I have a lot of specifics I want to talk about. Uh, even before I read this book and I just shared it that I had this book. I just shared the cover of me, me holding the book on social media that in itself began a conversation, uh, several conversations. And I want to talk about all of that. And I want to talk about the content of the book in detail, but before we do that, let's give me a general overview of what you mean when you say Jesus takes a side. I mean, Jesus takes the side of the oppressed, and when it comes to making political commitments, ours should align with uplifting and liberating the oppressed um, and giving them as much life and dignity as we can in our collective battle against death, which is what Jesus opposes. So where death exists, oppression exists, and where life flourishes, liberation exists. Jesus wants everybody to be liberated. And so we look at the least liberated and imagine Jesus working with them, relating to them, loving them. What was your impetus for writing this book, for saying this is a message that that you feel like needs to be out there? When Donald Trump was elected, and even during his campaign, the heinous racism and sexism and misogyny that came out of his mouth wasn't enough to convict many Christians to clearly take an opposition, a, a stance of opposition towards him, even, even ones that didn't support him. Now, there, are, there were many Christians that supported Donald Trump and still do. But even for the ones that knew that what he was saying was wrong, they hesitated to make political commitments and, and be political. But the time was so um, here to make an assertive stance against such evil. Um, and it was time for Christians to do that, and they couldn't do it. And so this was, this to me, an opportunity to say, no, it's gone too far. You know? And it was personal for me, too. Right. In, in, in January of 2017, when the Muslim ban was instituted, this executive order that kept Muslims from many different countries out of the U.S., I felt it personally. I felt it in my body as an Arab American, that this administration was opposed to people that looked like me, people that looked like my kids, and at that point, I needed to say something, and I needed Jesus to save me. And that had political connotations. That's what moved me to do this. I think it's, you mentioned that, and it's not only that you felt like this, this government administration was against people like you, who people who looked like you, but it was because it was done not, not, not strictly done in the name of Christ necessarily, but it was done with the backing of so many who do claim the name of Christ and absolutely it's, it, you know, there's like this cognitive dissonance really um, in, in Christianity. So you're saying now as a Christian, as a pastor, that you have to speak out against that. There is, th- th- this is not a time for neutrality. That's right. I mean, it, it definitely was motivated in part by the fact that so many Christians supported this Um but for Christians who didn't, it wasn't a try. It's time to be neutral. It wasn't a try, time to try to be apolitical, to create a bridge across the aisle. We had to take a firm stance against this hatred. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I first got this book, uh, I, I was the, the title sold me first of all oh, uh, because you. it is so different than what 
we hear in a lot of Christian parlance, which I find interesting because uh, on the conservative side, uh, obviously, there is a lot of taking sides. There is a lot of being involved in politics. Uh, sure. But yet if you, you come out and you just say Jesus takes a side, then everyone sort of reacts against that. Um, do you feel like there, there, there are people who are just like, hey, we shouldn't take sides. We got to stay in the middle. Um, or especially now, do you feel like people would read this and say, you know, well, Jesus takes a side and the immediate response is, yeah, and that's the, you know, conservative evangelical Republican side. So I do think that we see in the moral and what was called the moral majority of the religious light, what's what's become the far right right now. Um, or Christian nationalism, we do see a lot of political commitments among those groups of people. They don't really say they take a side. What they say is that we're right. What they say is that God is on our side. What they say is we are in the right position, as opposed to Jesus taking a side, really meaning Jesus sides with the oppressed, that there are two or more viable positions. There are ways to um, make commitments, and Jesus makes a specific one. So I don't hear from the religious right, from the far right, that Jesus makes political commitments. Instead, what I hear is a sort of Christian supremacy that this is the right way to do things. This is going to ruin our families. It's going to destroy our kids. This is why we have to do it. They engage in a culture war in a different way than I am, um, because what I'm talking about is actual explicit political commitments, as opposed to self-righteous ones, you know, ones that, that protect me, um, my, my, my personal and religious interests, but rather ones that uplift the most vulnerable. So I do see a difference there. Okay. But I understand that a lot of people resist political commitments because they see the Republican Party being co- or, or the Republican Party co-opting evangelicals, for example. White evangelicals are largely um, conservative Republican voting, and they and, and they have a bad taste in their mouth about politics if you come from that experience. And so the instinct is to say, no, we're not political, because being political is bad. Mm-hmm. In my viewpoint, it isn't p- being political that's wrong. It's being, it's allying with forces of death, such as racism, such as homophobia, sexism, patriarchy, greed, environmental degradation. These are the things that are wrong, not politics, but the, but, but, but the specifics of our actual politics. Mm-hmm. I think there, there is a sense in which we have to be engaged in politics on some level, because that's really is just being engaged right. with our community. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was sharing about this, this book when I, when I first got it in a, in a Facebook group, I'm a part of for church leaders. And one of the comments was immediately like, like, Oh, wow. Isn't it amazing how Jesus is always on the side that we're on. Uh, was sort of the implications that that you know we interpret Jesus to be whatever you know whatever whatever side that we think we're on we think Jesus is on our side. Now I, I have an answer to that, but I'm curious how you would respond to someone who you know when they, when they see your book and they say, well, of course you you think Jesus sides with you. Well, I mean, I think that specifically, I've gotten that point. Someone said Jesus Jesus only according to Johnny Jesus only takes Johnny's side, mm-hmm. but we have to enter into our f- discipleship with Jesus and following Jesus with softened hearts, ready to be changed. You know, if, 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 if my heart and my mind didn't change as a result of following Jesus, then maybe Jesus would just take my side. And that's how I would do it because it is, it is, it is a valid point that we often 
turn Jesus into someone who is just going to represent our interests. I think that's exactly what Christian nationalists have done. But in my experience, Jesus taking the side of the oppressed has taught me to become in touch with my oppression, in touch with my experience as a racial minority, my experience as a sexual minority, and it has changed me. So even in the book, I chronicle moments and seasons and issues that I've changed on and where I've changed and where I've grown. And so I think it's important to to enter in with a lot of intellectual and theological humility, knowing that we don't have the answer and ready to be transformed by the love of God and who God loves and how God loves and listen to the most vulnerable and allow their experience to change ours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of it. Cause you know, my, my like knee jerk response to that was like, well, you know, of, of course, because if I see the side that Jesus is on, that's the side I'm going to go to. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to say um, I, Jesus is here, but I want to be over here on, on this side. The, you know, so what we, what we have to do is not hope, you know, hopefully what we're doing is not subjectively trying to pull Jesus to our predetermined conclusion, but allowing ourselves to be moved by the spirit and to be moved toward the position that Jesus would take and be on the side that he is on, um, rather than trying to pull him over into the side that, that we have, um, one of the things that you, that you get into in this, in the book is that, you know, we're trying Jesus. He, he obviously he takes a side, um, but a lot of Christians want to shy away from that. Even, even if they implicitly or silently uh, take a political position, they will try to divorce that somehow from their religious position. Um, and that you, you call that the, the third way approach. It's not left. It's not right. Not Republican, not Democrat, not conservative, not liberal. And we're just, and we're doing that for the sake of, you know, inclusiveness in, in a sense, um, you know, a sense of unity that we're trying to, you know, cast the, you know, put everybody under the umbrella of Christianity and you can be a Christian, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you can be a Christian, whether you're conservative or liberal, we can disagree on all these issues, but we can have unity. And there's a sense in what you're saying, there's, there's got to be a limiter. What do you, what do you find wrong with that approach? Well, I appreciate how you define third way, because I think that's exactly how we understand it as a, as a, as a country and as a people, there was a time where third way meant something a lot different. There was a time where Martin Luther King's nonviolent resistance represented a third way between arms against racists Mm -hmm. versus arms, uh, you know, violence against the violence, right? Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King found a third way by demonstrating nonviolent resistance. But these days we don't call the third way, the Martin Luther King way, because if we did, we would say Black Lives Matter because the Black Lives Matter movement is based on nonviolent resistance. It's based on civil disobedience. It's based on the civil rights era. Today, BLM, Black Lives Matter, is just one of the poles. And then there's another pole. And then we're supposed to find a place in the middle that unites everybody. The fallacy of the third way comes from this. You have people that think it's okay for cops to kill black people. You have people that think it's okay um, to oppress LGBTQIA people. You have people that think it's okay to deport immigrants. And on the other end of it, you don't have people that think it's wrong for cops to kill people, 
people that want to dignify LGBTQIA people and people that oppose. Um, what was the last one I said? I can't recall. Uh, um, yeah, I know I've lost it. Sorry. We don't have differences in opposition. You know, mm. instead of having people that think it's okay to kill black people and people who think it's not, people who think it's okay to digni- to, to, to oppress LGBTQI people and people who think it's important to affirm them, people who think it's okay to deport immigrants and people who support immigrants, we actually have black people, LGBTQIA people and immigrants. They're not ideas, you have people. Mm-hmm. And so if you're picking a middle road between an idea that opposes a person and literally the person, there is no third way in the gospel. You pick the person, you pick the dignity of the individual. People who say we can be united despite our politics are ones who abstract politics, who make politics not a material embodied matter. And then when you learn to get in touch with the politics of your body, all of a sudden you have to make political commitments. Mm-hmm. I, I think of, of so many churches that say that the, you know, they want diversity. Uh, you know, if you're looking at a lot of primarily white churches, will say we want to be more diverse. And what they mean by more diverse is we want people who don't look like us to come into our community and then behave like us or, you know, be a part of our culture. It's they want diversity, but within a monoculture, not a, not right. a multiculture. And, uh, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a parallel to that here where it's like, yes, we want unity, but we want unity under a majority culture that can actually be oppressive to, you know, to the people that they're saying that they want to be united with. That's exactly right. It can definitely be. Like, I think those kind, that kind of unity falls on the back of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. I was I was reading. I think oh, now that I uh, now that I'm I'm going away from my my notes here. I think it's it's Zechariah or Zephaniah. I want to say Zephaniah. And uh, there's a vision that the prophet has of, um, of 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 horsemen that are going throughout all the earth, and they they are um, they're going throughout all the earth, and they're reporting back to. Uh, you know, the Lord God of hosts uh, on, on the, the status of the nation. And yep. they, they come back and they, and they say that everything is peaceful and quiet. And, and that seems like it should be a good thing, right? But it actually isn't. They, the, 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 um, the, the we see that there is condemnation for this because it is the fact that the oppression is so great that not even the cries of the oppressed are being heard. So it's, you know, mm. the, you know, peace is the absence of violence is not peace. Right. Exactly. The absence of violence is not peace. We can't make peace with death. You know, we can't love hatred. Um, we can't meet these forces of evil with peace and with love. We actually have to oppose them. Um, it doesn't make sense to try to reconcile death and life. Jesus came to defeat death. So if we say peace, peace, when there is no peace, we're just liars. Yeah. So we, we, but we can see, and, I, and I, I'm trying to think of in the mindset of people who do take this third way approach. It's, it, it's something you can do when you are part of majority culture. It's something you can do because yes. you're, because you're saying, you know, uh, 
I don't have to change, but these people, if, if we want to be united, these people have to change. I don't have to do any work, but these people over here have to do. Uh, do you think that a, a approach is appealing because it doesn't cause people in the majority to do any hard work or change? I think that absolutely it doesn't. You know, I think that when you pick a third way, what you're doing is actually just softening your position. And I think we can see this most clearly among LGBT, LGBTQI affirmation in, in churches. A lot of times churches don't want to say they're opposed to LGBTQIA folks. And so they just, they, they, they're not clear. Their website isn't clear. You ask a pastor, they want to take you out for coffee. And, 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 and there is no clear stance. But, and I participated in that in Circle of Hope, the church that I'm a pastor in. I participate. I saw the pain of the third way, which was, no, we don't affirm you, but you can still be around. We're still going to dignify you. Sexuality isn't really a part of your identity, et cetera, et cetera, right? You, you hear the excuses that ultimately amounts to, no, we will not affirm you. No, we will not do this. And so I challenge people that take a third way approach to wonder if indeed they aren't just siding with the oppressor. Um, or more than that, if they're not just giving the oppressed a half deal, if they're not just baiting and switching the oppressed, if they're not just gaslighting the oppressed. What for your church, you, you just mentioned that your church kind of walked through this process of of, of being sort of that non-confrontational, uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna pick a side. To ultimately, you, you know, you did you have picked a side. What did that process look like for your church? How did you begin to reconcile that and repent from your your position of not having a position and changing how you interacted with the community you serve? The most, the most clear thing that we did was listen to our queer minorities, listen to our LGBTQIA people. And when we did that, our hearts softened. We actually listened to what they needed. And all of a sudden, the Bible and our theology changed because we were listening to how to liberate and how to empower the LGBTQIA people around them, around us. It was essential for us to do that. You know, our minds weren't changed as much as they were moved by the experiences of these people. And, and, and the truth is, you might know queer folks and your mind might not change. And if that's the case, perhaps you're not listening that closely, or perhaps you think they're wrong, or any other reasons. But if you want to give someone an honest ear and actually hear what they're saying, I think your heart will be changed. You know, it is the faith of LGBTQIA people that motivated me to do that, that motivated me to change, help change our church, you know, and it comes with consequences, you know. It comes with a potential loss of my license, a potential loss of our connection with our denomination, but we still think it's essential that we do it. Mm -hmm. so speaking of your denomination, are you, you affiliated with uh, Mennonites USA or a different branch of? Um, currently, we're affiliated with the Brethren in Christ US, okay. but that okay. looks like it's changing, yes. Okay, yeah, because uh, I know that's been an issue. Uh, and I, 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 I bring up Mennonites USA because Harold Press is a... Um, absolutely Mino yeah. media uh, and they just recently at their annual conference this you know a few weeks ago um repented of their past position of not being affirming right. and uh, are moving toward a position of, of inclusivity and have have a, a way of doing that so um we, we're seeing movement forward in some denominations we're seeing movement backward unfortunately in other denominations that 
continues to be uh, an area where the church needs clarity and it needs love and compassion and it needs it needs people to see um, that Jesus sides with these absolutely Jesus sides absolutely with marginalized. Um, you you may there's a sentence in your book where you just simply said the lordship of Jesus is fundamentally a political act. Can you expound on that for me? Yeah, if we say Jesus is Lord, that's a politically determinative statement. Lord is a political office. Lord is a political title. Jesus is Lord over us, meaning we don't have any other gods before us. There is no other God. And so what does Jesus, who holds the ultimate political office, how does Jesus inform our politics? The reason we don't have, the reason there isn't room for different political commitments when it comes to the oppressed is because Jesus is the author of our politics and thus the author of love. And our love must be the same if we are following Jesus. And so we are to determine that together. And for me, listening to the oppressed is the best way to learn what Jesus wants to do. Listen to the people that are most harmed by our politics and help liberate them, help give them freedom. And that's, that's what it means. If Jesus is Lord, then don't submit to the lords of racism and homophobia and white supremacy, Christian nationalism, ableism, um, greed, capitalism, these things. Don't submit to those lords. Submit to Jesus. To what extent should we try to bring about the kingdom through government, through the empire? Because I, I talk to a lot of Christians on this issue, and, and, and I think inevitably everyone is like, well, of course you should help the poor, but no, we shouldn't raise taxes or have social programs. That should be the churches or individuals that do that. You know, of course we should uh, pray for immigrants and refugees, but it's the government's job to determine who goes, you know, immigration and, and so on. Uh, and there seems to be a real hesitation to, to say that, that we should use government in order to, to bring about the social vision of the gospel. So yeah, to, to what extent do you see that we should use government as a tool to bring about the kingdom of God? I'd be interested to hear if those people had the same views when it came to abortion, when it came to keeping critical race theory out of schools, when it came to gay marriage. Mm -hmm. Do you want the government to legislate those things? Oftentimes there is hypocrisy there. Mm -hmm. Now, my response to those people is one, practically speaking, churches are too small to do this. Two, it's important for us not to question the means, but actually support the ends. What do we want to happen? And if the government is asking us for wisdom, why don't we offer it to the government? You know, in Romans 13, there's an argument to be made that Jesus has, God has instituted these governments. And if you live in a democracy, then you're a part of the government. It's actually, in some ways, your responsibility to participate. Um, I don't totally agree with that, but because I do reserve the right not to participate. But my point is that we can definitely help the government accomplish moral and decent things. And, and we all honestly owe it to ourselves to do it because the government's going to spend the money one way or the other. If we can funnel it to actually help people and, and, and help people thrive, that's really important. And there are just basic things that the government um, can do that people can't, you know. And even as a nonviolent person, I would extend that to the military. There are things the military can do 
that ordinary organizations can, can't. Like it was a good idea for the military to administer vaccines at some point. Um, honestly, I'm just being real practical about using what we can to do what we can. I'm also curious because your, your faith tradition is Anabaptist, mm-hmm. uh, which in some forms have, have traditionally been very separate from being involved in the political process. Right. Uh, but here you are, you're an Anabaptist pastor. You're writing a book published by a Mennonite press that, that you have a whole chapter that says that the love of Christ constrains us to vote and be involved in the political process. Uh, would you say that Anabaptist thinking is changing uh, on their involvement with the world at large, or is that just something that you see from like your particular subsection? I think when you start to incorporate the experience of racial minorities and sexual minorities in the U.S., you're going to see more political participation from Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. You know, political resistance in a state church um, like that happened in Europe among the Anabaptists made a lot of sense. They didn't participate in the church because the state, because that would also mean they participate in the church. They were fused together. The United States does present us with different opportunities, but as long as we engage in in politics practically and we don't think it's going to save us, I think we're pretty safe. So an election or a policy result or a bill isn't going to save us. It can just make things better. So for Anabaptists, I think it's important that we continue to make Jesus the preeminent Lord and then allow Jesus to expand our prophetic imaginations, not to be, not to be limited by our political constraints. In other words, the, in the United States, our politics is so narrow because you only generally can vote for a Republican or a Democrat. Um, and if you let those limits constrain your imagination, then you're really going to be doing your sisters and brothers, your siblings, a disservice because we come equipped with a potential of a prophetic imagination to imagine new things and new possibilities. And when we do that, there's a whole other way of thinking about the world. Like the Democrats aren't going to solve police brutality or the climate crisis or any number of things, but we can imagine a world where our communities are kept safer in a different way. We can imagine a world where the globe doesn't, um, destroy itself because of how we consume, because we've learned how to consume in new ways. Our faith then can help us um, learn new ways of doing things, new ways of being political. We are getting ready to move into, I mean, we're already well into the midterm uh, season, uh, but, but midterm elections coming up in November. Uh, how do we practically engage in politics in this era? Well, I mean, with the midterms, I would say just participate as you can. You know, Um, the makeup of the Senate and of Congress in the U.S. is really important in how policy gets done. And so don't sit this one out. It's important that we all vote because Christian nationalism is on the rise and it's on the rise in the Republican Party. And that's bad news for the U.S. and it's bad news for Christians, too. So in Pennsylvania, particularly, we have two races that are really important. We have Mastriano, who is a big stop the steal guy who is running for governor against a guy named Josh Sapiro, who's fairly uninspiring, but who I'll vote for. And then you have Dr. Oz, who's another far-right thinker backed by Trump, who opposes Fetterman, this senator. In Pennsylvania, it's important to vote, but in the whole country it is too, because if we just take back two Senate seats, then we can do a lot of progress on things like gun control and things like uh, uh, pandemic measures and so on and so forth, student aid. and All these things can happen if we just have two more seats. Um, 
So that's a practical way to engage, you know, but in general, I would encourage people to pick an issue like mine is going to be affordable housing. That's what I'm into. And then focus on how you can do it practically and how you can do it locally. Don't feel overwhelmed by trying to understand and learn everything. Rely on experts to do it. You know, when the epidemiologist tells you to follow COVID safety, do so. You don't have to do your own research. Listen to the expert. Similarly, follow the advice of experts everywhere so that you're not overwhelmed, so that you're not informing or misinforming yourself. The last question for you, then I'll let you go. Um, this book, obviously, with the title, it, it's meant to be a little confrontational. It's meant to kind of pique people's interest to be like, hmm, do I agree with that? I don't know if I agree with that. I want to read more about it. What do you hope that if people can like only take away one thing from this book, what do you hope they get out of it? I hope that people can overcome any resistance they have to making political commitments if they're convicted to move with Jesus to side with the oppressed. There's a lot of us out there that believe that our politics should be siding with the oppressed, but they're afraid to be partisan. Don't let the imperfections of our political system keep you from participating. But further, don't allow your imagination to limit you from participating as well. So engage in it practically, but also be prophetic. Try to defeat cynicism and despair. Feel your anger, but discipline yourself to have hope. Yeah. Well, Johnny, thank you for taking time out of your day to be on the podcast. Again, the book is Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. It is a passionate book, an eye-opening book. Uh, it is maybe a little bit different message than what you're used to hearing, uh, but it's something that I think that we that we need to hear and we need to um, consider um, not just not just for the sake of us being better followers of Jesus, but for the sake of our, our marginalized and oppressed brothers and sisters in Christ. Thanks so much, Josh.